healthcare quality improvement in the United States hasn't typically looked to Washington in order to make changes on the ground. Many of the reforms and new designs in healthcare delivery the past few decades have been the result of voluntary initiatives and impetus, often far from lawmakers and national decision makers. However, there are policy changes that promise to bring these worlds and aims closer together, and Medicare, as we know, is playing an active role. The Medicare physician fee schedule for 2016 is is a case in point. We learned on October 30th that two new codes in that fee schedule go into effect in January, and they will for the first time pay doctors and other providers for time spent with Medicare recipients on end-of-life or advanced care planning. Now, given where this issue was not that long ago, it's a notable change at the national level. Even better, there's been so much grassroots activity around end-of-life care the past several years and many innovations. These new payment options promise to make this dialogue between patients and providers all the more meaningful. We've got a great panel at a great moment to put in context what are being called voluntary advanced care planning consultations. And that's all ahead on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're here for you live, bi-weekly, and also on demand at IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. One of the things I love about the panel we've assembled for today's program is that they represent people and groups who are and have been in the trenches of changing the terms of engagement and expression around end-of-life care in this country, focusing on what matters most to patients. Now, many of you joining today are in these same trenches, so what a, a crowd, what an opportunity. Let's get right to introductions. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right, Matt. Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window, and if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all your questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. And if you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem keeps up, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take the time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thanks so much, uh, John. Uh, as a reminder, particularly for you veteran WIHI listeners, and I want to welcome everyone, even if this is, of course, your first time. It's so great that you're here. We're going to turn to the chat and comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We also do welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and at Convo Project in your tweets so we can engage with you further on social media. On the phone with us, we have Kate Lass. 
Lally. She is the Director of Palliative Care for Care New England Health System and Hospice Medical Director of Care New England, VNA Hospice. Dr. Lally spearheaded Care New England's role as a pioneer sponsor in IHI's Conversation Ready Initiative and helped integrate Conversation Ready principles into the health system's palliative care program. Welcome to you, Kate. Thanks, Madge. Happy to be here. Wonderful. Also on the phone, we've got Jocelyn Moore, who is the head of the Government Affairs Health and Wellness Practice at Glover Park Group. Jocelyn spent 15 years in the United States Senate, most recently serving as the Deputy Staff Director of the Senate Finance Committee. As Senator Jay Rockefeller's longtime health policy advisor, Jocelyn led the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Healthcare and helped write key portions of the Affordable Care Act. So glad you're with us, Jocelyn. Thank you, Madge. Happy to be here. Fabulous. Okay. Holly O is the Chief Medical Officer of the Dimmick Center in Roxbury, Massachusetts. As a pediatrician, she's been caring for families at this community health center serving Boston's inner city neighborhoods since 2000. In 2011, as part of a Merck Fellowship, Holly spent an immersion year at IHI learning about organizational leadership, change management, and quality improvement. Welcome, Holly. Thank you so much. It's a nice opportunity. Fabulous. And right across the way from me, right in the studio, is Harriet Warshaw. She's the executive director of the Conversation Project. Harriet has over 40 years of experience in the healthcare sector, including that of vice president at the Boston Hospital for Women, where she oversaw the development of the first NICU in Boston, the first midwifery program in Boston, and the integration of the Boston Hospital for Women excuse me, in the integration of the Boston Hospital for Women into the Brigham and Women's Hospital. There's a bit of interesting history there. Welcome, Harriet. Thank you. All right. I also want to say right at the outset that there are terrific resources you're going to be pointed to on today's show. And what I'm going to quickly mention is a white paper about how healthcare can become conversation ready based on the work of uh, systems like Care New England. This was co-authored by IHI Director Kelly McCutcheon-Adams and others. Kelly is tuned in to WIHI today, and we appreciate her being with us throughout the hour. That and many links, and there are other people connected with the work that you're going to be hearing about today who I'm sure we'll see on chat. So let's get started, and we're going to get started with Harriet. The Conversation Project was one of many organizations and individuals who weighed in during the comment, uh, public comment period on the new comment codes. I, boy, I can talk. Weighed in during the public comment period on the new payment codes. Are you pleased, Harriet? Is the Conversation Project pleased with how things have turned out? Well, we're just delighted. Um, we know that this is just the first step because there's many other pieces that have to take place to um, implement what we're hoping to be a cultural change um, in both the public sector and in the healthcare sector. And the Conversation Project is uh, contributing to this cultural change by encouraging everyone to have a conversation with their loved ones early and often around the kitchen table about what's important to them, what kind of care they would like at the end of their lives, and then to make sure that they have that conversation uh, with their health care providers so that we believe that there has to have this cultural change piece uh, in the public as well as uh, transformation within the health care sector. All right. Thanks very much. I guess I want to ask you one other very, very quick question. Um, 
The conversation project came about in part out of frustration uh, with the dialogue that was going on, the way things got politicized. Um, we promised we weren't going to talk a whole lot about death panels, but we all know what we're talking about at that period, and Jocelyn's going to help shed some light on some of that history. And in many ways, it just took off uh, like wildfire because of the public desire for something different. That public desire remains, and if anything, you've tapped into it even more. What do you see as kind of the ongoing dynamic, uh, in a way, between policy and that need for the public to stay very, very engaged and help, in some ways, steer the course here? Well, you're right. Um, the Conversation Project did grow out of Ellen Goodman's own personal experience that many of us who have been caregivers for a loved one experience that they she didn't know what her mom wanted at the end of her life so that uh, led her to this wonderful initiative and I think uh, that passion has to continue to move um, public policy so that we make sure that health providers now that they can get paid are also educated and that health care systems take the bold and complicated step of making sure their infrastructure can accommodate uh, people's end-of-life care wishes. How many times, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, has the starter kit for the Conversation Project been downloaded? It's, a, it's several hundred thousand or a few about, hundred? About 250,000. 250,000. Yeah. Okay. And growing. And growing, right. <laughs> so there's that website up in the chat screen right now. And always a reminder, if any of you are just joining us by the phone and aren't uh, part of uh, the uh, computer screen right now, um, you can uh, get all the references uh, by emailing info at IHI.org. All right. Thank you very much, Harriet, to get us started. So, Jocelyn Moore, there has hardly been a straight path to these new physician fees for end-of-life care discussions. Remind us of the historical and political context, and I'm curious what you think made some of these changes possible right now. And thanks again for being part of today's program. Sure. Thank you. Um, incidentally, I was at a meeting today where someone remarked that CMS just used their existing authority to provide Medicare payments to doctors for end-of-life consultations. And I venture to say that there's actually a lot more to the story. Um, there is, in fact, a long history regarding federal efforts to encourage greater advanced planning at the end of life. And I'll take just a few quick moments to review uh, the federal legislation that led us to where we are now. So during the first health reform effort of the early 1990s and after enactment of the Patient Self-Determination Act, a bipartisan group of senators led by my former boss, Senator Rockefeller of West Virginia and Senator Danforth of Missouri, called on Congress to do more on the issue of end-of-life care. And for those listeners who are interested, I'll post um, a great hearing transcript from May 5, 1994, where the Senate Finance Committee was pondering how to address end-of-life care issues as part of health reform. As we all know, the Clinton health reform effort didn't actually become law, but there was a confluence of factors in the late 1990s that helped move the national debate on end-of-life care forward, uh, a few of which are, I will highlight here. So first, there's the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, which I know many of the panelists are familiar with. And that law included a number of provisions um, related to hospice care, but it also required that patients' advanced directives be placed in a prominent part of his or her medical record. So that was a, a, a good step forward. 
Uh, also in the late 1990s, we had several court cases across the country, as well as the growing end-of-life care movement in the states, which really focused national attention on quality of life at the end of life. Uh, excuse me, quality of care at the end of life, as well as the need for increased public awareness and physician education. It was also in 1997 that Senator Rockefeller, who I already mentioned, along with Senator Susan Collins of Maine, introduced the Advanced Planning and Compassionate Care Act for the first time. And it is this legislation and its subsequent reintroduction in each Congress since the 105th Congress that led to the policy we are discussing today, Medicare reimbursement for physician consultation at the end of life or regarding the end of life. As Madge has alluded to, the process of getting this provision enacted into law was by no means easy. It took nearly 20 years to get this done, and there were several bumps along the way. There was a tragic and heartbreaking case of Terry Schiavo in 2005, which I know many will recall. Um, while it did help, that, that uh, situation did help to raise awareness about the need for advanced directives. It also had a huge chilling effect among some members of Congress. We also know that uh, Sarah Palin made the infamous death panel statement in 2009, and because of that statement, language that was in the Rockefeller-Collins bill, and Blumenauer was the sponsor in the House, language allowing physicians to be reimbursed for counseling patients on advanced directives uh, and other end-of-life care options was removed from the final health reform bill that was signed into law, and that was absolutely devastating, not only to uh, the many members of Congress on a bipartisan basis who'd worked on this issue for many years, but also to uh, the advocates all across the country. Um, but fortunately, in 2010, uh, the Obama administration took a courageous step forward uh, when they decided to use their administrative authority to include advanced care planning as a voluntary part of the Affordable Care Act established annual Medicare wellness visit. Um, however, and I, I'm sure you all have seen the articles, the resulting uproar at the end of 2010 caused the administration to retract the provision before it could take effect in January of 2011. Fortunately, we are all here today, and because of the years of evidence-based work in this area, significant education and advocacy in the states, and the aging of the baby boomer population, cooler heads have ultimately prevailed. And as of January 1st, 2016, physicians will finally, and I want to underscore finally, be allowed to get reimbursed for counseling their patients on all of their end-of-life care options. I should note in closing that I'm crossing all of my fingers and toes and saying lots of prayers in hopes that it actually happens this time, but I, I absolutely believe that it will. So thank you for the time. Jocelyn, thank you so much. We're so glad you're here. And what um, interesting history to be reminded of and uh, 20 years uh, in the making. And uh, so uh, thank, thanks so much. And uh, we'll get back to you during discussion time. All right, I want to turn now to Holly O. Holly from uh, the Dimmick Center in Roxbury, Massachusetts. So for primary care practitioners, these new payments surely signal a real opportunity now to integrate discussions, advanced care discussions, into routine encounters with Medicare recipients. Um, however, we all know it's not that simple. So how do you see these things kind of playing out in the uh, primary care world, of which you're part of, and then perhaps at the Dimmick Center in particular? Uh, where there are maybe some particular challenges. Thanks, Holly. Yeah, thanks, Madge. I, I just want to, um, you know, echo again, certainly pay, payment reform is so helpful, you know, to reimburse doctors for 
these very important, very involved health conversations will certainly be, you know, one way to provide more incentive for providers to figure out how to bring these conversations into the primary care visit. But, um, but I think if we're talking about getting this to happen routinely for all our patients well before they get ill, then really finding more time is still our most challenging barrier. Um, you know, it's hard to fit end-of-life care conversations into the same discussion that you're already trying to squeeze in. Depression screening, cancer screening, falls risk screening, how's your diabetes, what's your housing status, um, and so forth. Um, and that, that, I think, continues to be, you know, the challenge that's really first and foremost in all of our minds. Um, so at my health center, which is the Dimmick Center, we're, we're trying to test out having the end-of-life conversations getting teed off by and started by um, staff members uh, other than the provider um, and trying to take that tactic um, to address the time issue. Um, you know, and as we start opening up that possibility, we have been learning a whole lot. Um, you know, first, just a little bit of context. Um, you know, Dimmick is a community health center in the heart of Roxbury, uh, one of the underserved neighborhoods of Boston, and we serve a population where the typical health challenges um, are greatly magnified by the social determinants of health. Um, culture and linguistic diversity is also part of our everyday fabric, and things like homelessness and family instability, mental health issues, and the effects of trauma are um, common considerations in our everyday practice. Um, but because of these needs, we have on our staff here case managers, social workers, therapists in an integrated behavioral health and primary care model. So we've um, kind of looked at this as an opportunity. Um, and specifically, you know, could our case managers um, or community health worker be uh, someone who could start and tee off the end of life conversation with a patient? Um, and so by starting to get our staff a little bit more comfortable with the idea of someone else besides a doctor um, being able to introduce the end of life conversations, we might be able to tackle this issue of not enough time. And I think the other thing that we're starting to learn is that, you know, we might find that other staff members, other team members might actually be uniquely equipped to start the conversation with certain populations. So, you know, as one example to share with you all, um, there was a pilot that we did, you know, could it be that a therapist, a social worker, starts the um, end-of-life conversation with clients who are receiving behavioral health care in the practice? Um, and we learned from one interaction that the end-of-life conversation um, that was started uh, within, you know, this diet, a therapist and their behavioral health client, um, brought up some questions of previous trauma. But, you know, who better to help navigate that context than the patient's longstanding therapist? You know, so it was a, a, an interesting um, um, bit of knowledge that we learned just from this dyad. Or, you know, as another example, could it be that a community health worker who is fluent in Spanish introduced the topic for people who prefer Spanish as their first language? You know, absolutely makes sense. So, you know, we're just at the beginning of this exploration, but it's definitely opened up new possibilities of how to bring these conversations into the practice and in a practical way. Thanks, Holly. I really, really appreciate that. And perhaps during the discussion, we can talk a little bit about uh, there's this literal fact of uh, payment codes in a, f in a fee schedule in Medicare and how one bills for time. And then there's team-based care 
and who can be part of the whole process here. Um, and uh, maybe uh, our panel today can kind of help shed some light on that, and those of you also participating in the WHI can as well. All right, we're going to turn now to Dr. Kate Lally from Care New England, and I don't think it's overstating things to suggest uh, that as somebody who oversees palliative and hospice care, you're definitely among leaders and organizations ahead of the curve. So tell us what's been happening at Care New England in Rhode Island already and whether you now foresee further changes and perhaps some challenges as well. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Madge. Well, I'm so excited to be here with this great group of panelists and and really to be able to be speaking at a time when such changes are happening and that Medicare is acknowledging the value um, that these conversations can provide. Uh, Harriet mentioned the public desire, and I feel that when I speak to people um, in the general public about having end-of-life conversations, that they want to do this and they want to engage with their medical team. Uh, And now having Medicare acknowledge that that's valuable enough to pay for, I think is a huge step in the right direction. Could we improve things? Yeah, I think we could, but I think it's a great first step. So you mentioned that I do palliative care and I do it at Care New England. So who are we? We uh, Care New England is a four-hospital health system in Rhode Island. We have um, four hospitals and a home health care agency that provides hospice and palliative home care. And we started our palliative care um, program in 2012. And like many of you probably listening who are involved in palliative care, we started small, part-time, just me, um, seeing patients in one of our hospitals. And as anyone in palliative care can tell you, that once you start engaging with patients and families about what matters to them and having conversations with them and their healthcare team to help make medical decisions that aligns with their wishes, you become very, very popular. And that is what happened to us. We started seeing patients in one hospital and rapidly, rapidly grew uh, to the point that one physician couldn't possibly see all the patients who were being referred to us. So we had become a pioneer sponsor of what's called Conversation Ready, so the healthcare arm of the conversation project that Harriet spoke about. And as part of that work, we were working with the IHI to determine how health systems across the nation can be ready to engage with patients and families in these type of conversations. So if they're going out, they're using the Conversation Project Starter Kit, they're thinking amongst themselves, what do they want? How do we as health systems react to that and engage with these patients about what matters to them? So what we felt at Care New England was that we needed to expand the number of people well-trained in having these conversations. And like many of you, if not all of you listening out there, you know, financial situations are tough and it was hard to say, okay, we're going to hire multiple physicians to do this. So we piloted the idea of using a team, just like Holly just discussed. We piloted the idea of using a conversation nurse. This was a nurse who was uh, well-trained in having conversations, end-of-life conversations, and we used her to expand the number of patients we can see. And as you can see, you know, our program started in 2012 with a few patients, and uh, in 2014, we saw well over 1,000 new patients in our inpatient um, program, and I don't have the final numbers for this year, but I I think we're going to be around 1,300, 1,400 that we saw. So we've really been able to grow by adding these nurses um, and training them in uh, end-of-life conversations um, and how to engage with patients and families. 
So, you know, how do we keep doing this? And I think we need to train. We have an extensive training program that we put our nurses through, and there are some resources that um, will be available at the end of the um, uh, presentation that we often use. So many are very low cost or free. I see um, Madge has them here. We often use the Conversation Project Starter Kit. We often use um, the Stanford website, which is available for free and has some videos of good and bad conversations and how to do them better. Vital Talk has a fantastic app that you can download inexpensively. So there are some great resources out there for teaching physicians, nurses, social workers, community healthcare workers, I love that idea, to engage with patients and families about what's important to them and then help support them as they make decisions about uh, what, what uh, kind of care they want to get. Kate, thank you very much. Uh, one quick follow-on question. When you and I were talking in preparation for today's program, I asked you whether providers who are outside the worlds of hospice and palliative care and not as directly involved in that, whether they were prepared uh, for yeah. these changes and to take advantage uh, of the payment codes uh, and, you know, to the extent that that can jumpstart things. And I think you unequivocally said to me, no. No. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I don't think people are. No. So I, 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 I thought maybe you could just um, talk about that and whether anything might be unfolding at CARE New England. Uh, I, I would hope in a way that maybe your expertise and that of your team would be sought after even more uh, to help spread things uh, th throughout the system. A any thoughts on that? So you're absolutely right. You know, we, we say this is a commonly said thing in palliative care that having these conversations is a procedure. And just like if you're going to start doing appendectomies, you would expect physicians to be trained in doing appendectomies. Um, we really should be training our providers and having these conversations because they are a skill. And we do do a lot of training. So both for um, young doctors and medical students coming up, they rotate with us. We kind of go through with them the uh, different aspects of a conversation, how to engage with patients and families, how to ask questions to get patients and families to talk. So I always say, you know, uh, listen more, talk less. If you're talking a lot, the conversation isn't going well. Um, and we're also doing some education through a grant that we've recently gotten with primary care practices. So bringing in people trained in palliative care and geriatrics. Geriatricians often um, are very good at this, having these conversations as well. To work with primary care providers in their own offices and do some training about what words to use, how to approach patients and families, um, and, and really honestly how to use a team. Because as Holly mentioned, I think team-based medicine is just becoming bigger and bigger, and that is going to be crucial to doing this in a time-effective way. Okay. Thanks so much, Kate. Yes. Um, Harriet. Uh, we have been working with some clinicians who are testing out using um, group educational sessions in their practice and in the outpatient setting, and we've but it, they've documented the effectiveness of that and how by going through the starter kit with their loved ones in a group setting, uh, the number of people uh, filling out advanced care plans have significantly impacted. Thanks very much. That's good. I would imagine, Harriet, uh, that you'll start hearing about all kinds of things, um, you know, people, you know, just anecdotally. And uh, so would you say there's been kind of a real buzz around the stuff with the rules change? There has been, and we have been talking to many of the national um, 
clinician organizations who are beginning to think on a for their membership how can we collaborate and bring the tools of conversation ready and the conversation project to their larger memberships such as the family physicians and hospice and emergency medicine everybody's beginning to think about how they can uh, educate themselves but for us what's particularly profound about the payment codes is that it's for all Medicare patients. So one does not have to be critically ill, seriously ill. It's for all of us. And that, to me, is a recognition that these conversations need to take place early and often and change over time as our health care status changes. But they are important to begin when we're healthy. Okay. Thanks a lot, Harriet. All right. Um, first of all, I want to acknowledge uh, all the nice uh, activity in the chat on the program today. Uh, glad to see folks uh, carrying on some interesting discussions and sharing resources and contact information. Uh, it's a good moment to remind you that you can download this chat when you finish the program today, and it will also be uploaded to our website uh, by tomorrow morning. So it's a very valuable resource for you to do further networking and to be reminded of some of the things we're talking about. All right, John, I guess that means also people know what they're doing in talking to chat uh, or t- being on the chat, but maybe a quick reminder. Yeah, of course. Just make sure that all your uh, questions and comments are directed to all participants in the send to bar down in the chat. All right. Thanks a lot, John. All right. I want to uh, – there's an interesting – first of all, we always love it when we see people on the program from other countries. Um, we know these issues um, <laughs> as life and death itself <laughs> are universal and uh, global in nature. Uh, we had a comment from somebody in New Zealand uh, talking about uh, reimbursement and uh, – Um, sort of asking in a cautious way, how do we actually evaluate and um, almost monitor the quality uh, of the encounters themselves? Um, And, uh, David, I do hope I'm reflecting your question um, accurately, but uh, he's asking for any tips on quality auditing, he says, uh, or quality assurance in these kinds of things where uh, reimbursement uh, may be getting underway there as well. So I don't know who might want to uh, jump in on that one. Uh, Kate, maybe I'll ask you uh, as, as somebody who's been at this for a while. So I think that's a very key point because currently we do ask at every hospital and nursing home, do you have an advanced directive? And often that's done by a secretary and it's a checkbox and there's absolutely no follow-up. And there's, it, it, you know, again, a step in the right direction, but really nowhere near sufficient. So how do we know that these conversations are high quality? And I don't think we can go based on whether an advanced directive is filled out or not, um, because I think you can have a really high-quality conversation where a patient says, okay, you've given me a lot to think about. I want to go talk about this with my family and think about what my wishes are. And that quality can still be very – and that conversation can still be very high-quality. I think, you know, we're, I think we're going to have to define that, honestly, as, um, as a, a field. I think palliative care will be at the forefront of that. I've heard many people talk about that. But I think what makes a high-quality conversation is that the patient and family have a voice in discussing what matters. The doctor or provider, whoever it is, um, you know, really gets them to speak, to talk about their experiences. They, the provider offers some insights into various options. 
and then there's some space for questions um, and concerns. And so how we define that, I don't think we know right now, um, but I absolutely agree high quality is crucial, but I don't think it'll be defined by just the outcome of an advanced directive or not. Okay, thanks. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? Um, Holly, if, if you feel like it, uh, uh, just and then I'm going to toss a question, I think, Jocelyn's way. But Holly, any thoughts on that in terms of overseeing the quality? Yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, I think one other um, angle to add, and I, this is, um, you know, coming from our perspective as an organization that's just getting um, our approaches and our program off the ground is um, completely agree with Kate, with what Kate said and some of the parameters that we could all sort of globally look at in terms of the quality of the interaction. But I think what we're also recognizing on the ground here is just some of the um, – uh, issues that may be unique to our setting or our populations um, and making sure that both training-wise as well as um, in terms of competencies, um, those issues are addressed. You know, I think one that pops up in a, the top of my head is what I mentioned earlier um, with the populations that we work with where mental health is an issue, where um, trauma-based um, or sort of, uh, experience with trauma is a very real thing. You know, as we're uh, putting together our trainings, we're recognizing, well, those uh, issues have to be kind of addressed in our trainings and our competencies. So, um, you know, I think just a word to uh, people have, you know, sort of uh, nuances to the populations they serve. And so there may be quality sort of issues or metrics that uh, an eye needs to be paid to um, that are uh, practice specific. Thanks, Holly. I appreciate that. Jocelyn, I, I'm going to turn to you with this question because I somehow have this feeling that you have dodged and fielded uh, every which way that doubt can be cast on uh, what <laughs> becomes policy and payment, et cetera. And I see Deb Love has say, is asking, what is your response to the Halpern article in today's New England Journal of Medicine, which claims that there's no evidence base behind advanced care planning. Now, I haven't seen that piece. Uh, maybe we can throw it into the chat here, uh, and I don't want to put you on the spot about that article in particular, but I think it. Uh, I think we can expect, um, you know, there's, there's going to be a, a churn here uh, around uh, what we're doing and what we think we're doing and what, it, what it's based on. So I thought I'd start with you on that one. Absolutely, and I was waiting for that question, I thought, on the, the chat, so I, I'm happy to try and answer that. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I think the interesting thing about, and I have not read the article, let me say that, but I will read it um, uh, very soon after the conversation, but what I will say is it's easy to say that there's no evidence when you haven't had a system that has had an end-to-end, if you will, uh, end-of-life care um, framework or infrastructure. So to the point that was just raised about the quality of those discussions, so we have different levels and types of discussions that are happening. That's one issue. We've also in the past um, had folks who didn't even have advanced directives at all, and even when patients did have advanced directives and they were in a medical record, maybe that medical record was in a hospital basement somewhere, filed away, and it didn't actually get transferred to the nursing home or wherever the person uh, was receiving or the hospice facility where the person was receiving care. So I think the issue of saying that there is not enough evidence right now, well, we really have only done end-of-life care planning and um, end-of-life care care um, in a piecemeal fashion, and I don't think it's a fair assessment at this point in time to say that there is no 
um, evidence. We, we have a lot of evidence from any number of states, and we also have indiv individual stories, not only of people that we know, um, but of people that we've read about. So I, I will read the article, but I'm very skeptical of anyone who says there isn't enough evidence. And I think part of the challenge is we haven't really had a coordinated federal, state, local effort to really tackle the, the fundamental questions around end-of-life care. We haven't really dealt with the difficulty of these conversations, and we haven't really provided, um, you know, uh, in terms of a national across-the-board conversation, kind of outlets for, for people to go. Like, we've made it very scary to talk about end-of-life care. Uh, we've told people the government is trying to kill them. Uh, we've done all these things which have created false um, barriers to folks actually seeking the care. So I think it's premature to say that there is no evidence. I'd actually go even further than that and say it's patently false because I, I know of a lot of evidence that actually says that this is, you know, a worthwhile endeavor. Thanks so much, Jocelyn. I appreciate that. Um, I want to, lots of comments and questions, and I'm going to group them in a couple of ways. There are numbers of people asking about, um, I guess, the ability of both the ability as in skill level for all kinds of people in the care team to be initiating and, uh, you know, these these conversations and carrying them out. Some people are raising questions about when things can get very complicated in terms of particular medical prognoses and that sort of thing. So let's hold that one out there. Harriet, I think um, another question that I may turn to you is about estate planning uh, because the Conversation Project has had some nice experience uh, around that area uh, and no, this webinar is not intended to only be looking at this um, you know, uh, as a medical issue uh, far from it and I think that's one very, very important thing to underscore. I also, there was a comment in here where somebody said that they were told that uh, Coder was told that these are all state issues uh, and states get to decide. That one seems patently wrong, um, but maybe that person who chatted that in can clarify that a little. You have a thought on that. Maybe I'll turn to you now, Harriet. Well, yeah, um, on the, that one, I'm not sure if they're talking about um, that the intermediaries can decide whether they are going to reimburse. So Medicare has the code, but um, Private insurance sometimes are the intermediaries of Medicare, so maybe that is what um, they're referring to. But we do know many private insurance companies, even before Medicare, um, decided to pay for these end-of-life conversations, are paying for this. In Massachusetts, we know Blue, Blue Cross Blue Shield is paying for it right now. Uh, your other question was, was about a state. Somebody was <laughs> oh, asking right. about being uh, having these end of life conversations integrated with estate planning right. and other kinds of things. So we really see uh, these conversations as a community responsibility. And since our beginning, um, various communities, whole communities, and prof various professional organizations have reached out to us and have said. Um, this is important for our residents, our clients, and can we uh, work together um, in helping to train estate planners, financial planners, um, uh, bereavement counselors, a whole wide array of stakeholders recognizing the critical importance of these conversations, not only for the patient but for the caregiver, because we know that when these conversations take uh, place early and often and there's consistency among 
family members of how to care for their loved ones at the end of their lives. Uh, depression is uh, reduced, and um, it, among family members, the patient, as well as the caregiver, the clinicians. So, um, yes, this is a wide open area for everybody within the community to take on. That's great. I thank you, Harriet. And I am noticing people are putting up some interesting things. Uh, Betsy. Mount Auburn Cambridge Independent Practice Association, sometimes referred to as MACIPA, uh, planning the 2016 Physician Forum for all PCPs with materials developed by Ariadne Labs, communicating with serious illness. So I think it's fabulous. Put in anything you you, you folks are aware of because this is an, a nice time uh, to uh, have the, those materials come together. Um, and an interesting question that Mara is asking, I don't know if this is more technical, can these codes be used in other settings, home care, the hospital, are they setting specific? And uh, shout out there if anyone has uh, any any knowledge of this. Maybe should I start with Kate on that one, Kate Lally? I believe, you know, in reading some of the um, review pieces, uh, you know, analyzing um, the new codes, I believe that I've read that they can be used um, in multiple settings. I particularly have seen in the clinic and in the hospital. I'm not sure about in the home, but honestly, I would imagine they could be. Okay, very good. All right, some additional questions, people asking about a little bit more about sort of group discussions. Um, maybe you were you were referencing that Harriet and I sure. wonder um, if anything more you want to say about that as a practice that may take off more now and uh, Holly and Kate any any experience with that uh, that that you're aware of. So we've had two institutions do work in this area. Actually, one is Mount Auburn Hospital, um, and one of their primary care physicians undertook a study uh, using the starter kit, comparing if the starter kit was used versus not used, um, what was the likelihood of completing an advanced care plan. And it was 60% greater if people were in the uh, study group that used the starter kit, so significant. And also what they found was that there was a social networking element in that it those people that were in that the group educational setting spoke to an additional four people about the importance of having an advanced care plan. The second place that this is uh, being studied is uh, University of Colorado in Denver. Uh, we haven't gotten the results back from that, but preliminary shows a very successful um, that people like being together to talk about it, and that fear that many clinicians have that their patients do not want to have these conversations is completely false. Once somebody opens up the conversation, uh, the pearls just flow out of people's mouths. Okay, very, very good. Kate or uh, Holly, anything further you, uh, either of you want to say about group things? Somebody was asking in a way, also, it's again that issue about uh, how you pull that together, who initiates uh uh, how you form almost that that kind of a group? Um, any thoughts on that? Either one, Kate. Uh, so, it's, as far as the team base, and I think that's kind of what you're getting at. How do you use a, a team to have these conversations? And maybe we, a group a group of patients uh, is a group of patients. Yes. 
You know, I think to Harriet's point about people wanting to have these conversations, it amazes me because I hear over and over from doctors that people don't want to talk about this. And recently I gave a presentation to a lifelong learning collaborative, so um, retirees in Providence, Rhode Island, who were just interested in learning about things. And, and we talked about some of the work that Care New England has done with the Conversation Project. And I have to say there was almost anger on the part of the patients that their doctors didn't do this enough. So, you know, they were very interested in, you know, reading about the Conversation Project. They were interested in downloading the starter kit, but they, they really wanted to hear how to get their doctors to engage with them more um, in these conversations. Okay, that sounds very, very good. Um, are we going to get caught up in, uh, I don't want to call them weeds because they're very important issues about as when we have physician codes and our understanding is, if everybody's read the fine print, that nurse practitioners and physicians can literally reimburse. Um, this can extend out to others on the team who are part of the discussion. One can still bill under the physician code. But do you think uh, anybody on on the call, I don't know, Jocelyn, if you have any thoughts on this, are going to get tripped up around these issues in terms of who, how this can become a team activity, uh, given where this, you know, how we've threaded the needle here uh, th- through CMS. Any thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, I think um, as with all legislation, um, we start out sometimes uh, potentially narrower than where we need to be. And I think with this issue in particular, just given, um, you know, some of the challenges over the years of even getting the physician uh, reimbursement piece across the finish line, um, I think it's a start. But I, you know, in terms of the the actual practice and a, a group setting, all of that, I think, you know, as we go forward and learn more, hopefully we can continue to improve upon this uh, at the federal level and not just leave the conversation where it is. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, maybe, Jocelyn, I'll keep you for just one more second. As a beginning, uh, do you think there's much more in the near term <laughs> that may likely come out um, of either CMS or Washington uh, in, in this area, and where might we see it uh, coming from uh, if, if we were paying attention? Sure. I mean, I think um, Patrick Conway, I believe, and I'll have to find this, our, a CMS official was quoted saying kind of the next step in this effort is really improving the quality of care at the end of life and so and looking at quality standards. And that was a key piece of uh, the Rockefeller-Collins legislation is really having, um, you know, the um, Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research and all the different quality entities at HHS really take a substantial look at what we're doing with care at the end of life and trying to develop appropriate quality metrics. And I know this has been something that the AMA has been, the American Medical Association and others have also focused on. So I do think that's a next conversation piece. Whether or not federal legislation is required is a question mark because obviously the National um, Quality Forum is is pretty active without uh, federal legislation, uh, as is the Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research. So I think that is probably a natural next step, and it may not require um, you know, federal legislation to get some of those quality metrics and standards in place. Okay, thanks, Jocelyn. So I want to try and bring together two or a couple thoughts here. Uh, Natalie took the bold step uh, in the chat and said, doctors don't want to have these conversations. We do know that they are voluntary. 
Um, I do want to clarify. Somebody suggested that there only there's only allowed to be one of these conversations, and that is incorrect. That's one of the significant things that has changed with the codes. Um, but we do have a, a culture change. There is resistance. There's uneasiness uh, on the part of providers. Um, and I guess I maybe I'll dive back over to to, to Holly there, and. Um, I don't know what what what's the what's the chat <laughs> chatter around the water cooler um, in terms of uh, how at ease uh, physicians and others you know who are primary care providers are feeling about engaging in these discussions. Uh, you know, to what extent does it make people really nervous? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, you know, in our experience here, as we've begun to kind of talk about this a bit more sort of in detail with our primary care providers, I I sense that the biggest trepidation is around, gosh, I'm not sure I want to open this can of worms if I don't have the time and the space to really address it the way I want to address it. And I I get the sense that that's where most of the anxiety lies. Um, uh, I think most of the uh, colleagues that I'm working with recognize the need for it, recognize the importance for it, and really want to do it. But you know, I think many of them are afraid of opening that Pandora's box if they have um, all of, you know, three minutes to actually address all the things that may come up. And it's that fear, I think, that's driving maybe the hesitance to um, address the situation, which then I think goes back to, again, that team-based conversation. You know, what can we explore um, and do and utilize kind of our different team members to be able to tee up different parts of the conversation. Um, And that's how we're trying to kind of begin to approach this. You know, in in some of the conversation in the chat that's coming through, you know, people have um, expressed some concern around, well, gosh, are social workers or nurses or community health workers um, qualified uh, to have these conversations, especially when um, questions of our own prognosis come up? Um, You know, the way that we're trying to approach it are, um, first of all, trying to um, tee up these conversations well before someone's ill um, so that issues of prognosis may not actually be the most acute thing um, in that moment. But also, you know, um, you know, our work is actually kind of twofold right now. We're also trying to kind of get doctors and providers used to the idea um, that they actually don't have to hold all the pieces. And that's really challenging. That's kind of a challenge all across team-based care is how do we get providers comfortable with the idea that they don't have to do everything um, and that we can train up um, team members uh, to do other uh, different functions um, as well or sometimes even better um, if if we're sharing that responsibility. And so some of the work that we've been doing is um, what parts of the conversation, this end-of-life conversation, could be teed up by a community health worker, a case manager. Um, can we come to some common understanding about what that would be, what the um, bounds of that would be, so that both the doctor as well as um, the other staff member would know, you know, where where do the boundaries lie? When should I kind of turn it over to the doctor for further conversation and so forth? And for us right now, it's coming across, you know, when things start to turn towards the technical part of the conversation, um, that's, um, you know, the point at which the case manager knows to turn it over to the doctor. But you know, getting people comfortable with the idea that um, other folks can tee up parts of the conversation, particularly, number one, just introducing it, introducing the importance of it, and beginning to talk to folks about the value-based piece of this. Um, I think we're getting um, providers more and more comfortable with the idea that there are other um, team members who could do this um, very, very well. Thanks, Holly. So I just wanted to also add to what Holly said is that as we've been asked to work with a a whole range of professionals from nurses to physicians to social workers. They're people first. And so we have them go through the starter kit as fathers, husbands, sons, wives, because it is 
astounding how many professionals who you would think would have had these conversations already have not had them. So once they've gone gone through it themselves, they understand the magnitude, the importance, the power, and the challenges of having these conversations. And it moves them just a little bit closer to a comfort level of having it with their patients. All right. Thanks very much. I want to ask, um, uh, actually, I want to point out that the IHI uh, Open School, which is IHI's virtual university teaching quality improvement to students in the medical, nursing, pharmacy, and uh, health administration professions uh, with chapters all over the world, does have a course a free course on um, having the conversation. Maybe Vicki here in the studio can uh, put that link uh, into the chat. Uh, somebody in the chat was uh, talking about the need for education, uh, not only for the next generation of health uh, providers, but, of course, um, those who are in the professions themselves. So I wanted to point that out. Um, I'm curious to what extent, uh, as uh, Medicare goes, d- uh, does that sort of Often it's a bellwether for what's going to happen with other insurers. Harriet, you were saying before that um, already some insurers, Blue Cross Blue Shield here in Massachusetts, and that um, whether anyone else has any sense about the ripple effect of this, in part I'm thinking about it because as we talk about the need for these conversations at many different times of life, long before one is necessarily a Medicare recipient, and some of your imagery here has young people having these conversations, uh, what we think we can anticipate, and I don't know if we're, we're only speculating here, but uh, and any thoughts on that, uh, where how things might play out? Harriet? Well, Jocelyn might be the yeah. expert in this, but yeah. um, historically, um, other insurers have uh, looked to Medicare to set the standard. And once they've uh, given them given something a stamp of approval, then many other sh- insurers usually fall in line. Okay. So I would not be surprised if this is just the beginning. Okay. Jocelyn, any thoughts on that? I agree with that, and I think the other thing happening here is that the AMA is uh, has for a long time taken a leadership role in uh, you know demanding a change in terms of end of life care. So I think that's also another factor that will drive uh, the broader insurance community. All right, thanks very much. All right, a quick uh, uh, update here on something coming up from John. Go ahead, John. Yeah, thanks. Uh, The recent changes in the Medicare reimbursement policy provide an opportunity for more clinicians and patients to engage in end-of-life conversations, and that's what today's WHI has been about. However, many people are confused about where to start and whether you're uncertain about the new rules for CMS reimbursements or about starting those conversations with patients. A new IHI call series will serve as your resource on understanding this new landscape for end-of-life conversations. This January, IHI is offering end-of-life conversation as part of our STAT call series, a web-based training that will provide guidance from leaders in the field on how they are making sense of the new policies, engaging with patients around end-of-life care planning, and stewarding the information reliably across the continuum. Join a large network of individuals looking for help on this important topic and have your question answered in real time by our faculty experts. Visit IHI.org expeditions or email info at IHI.org for more information. 
Thank you so much, John. All right, we're coming to this wrap-up time, and uh, what a very, very rich discussion, fabulous panel, and a really wonderful audience and all the expertise that we're bringing together here. So I'm going to go around the horn, and any final thoughts you have? I often say, you know, what should we be thinking about uh, maybe over the next couple of months, six months, watch this space, uh, pretty much anything you'd like to say. And I think, Jocelyn, I'll start with you. Thanks. Sure. Thanks, Madge. I think the the one thing I would say is, you know, uh, if there was any big lesson learned is don't wait for the federal government, which I know no one on this call is doing. But I think um, the efforts in the states have been critical to bringing national attention to this. And, the, uh, you know, as we move forward, they will continue, state efforts will continue to be critical. One of the other things that was brought up today um, are the efforts in Rhode Island. Uh, the Catholic Church is really involved and has been really involved um, in end-of-life care and advanced care planning. So that's been significant in that state. And then in Wisconsin, uh, Gunderson Lutheran is also very involved. So I think, you know, continuing at the state and local level to drive change, um, you know, is how we're going to get there. And, you know, hopefully it won't be another 20 years for the federal government to act. All right. Well, Jocelyn, thank you for being part uh, of this program. And I think we should thank you for the last <laughs> 15, 20 years uh, of effort. So we're, we're so pleased to have you with us and have that perspective. So very uh, grateful for your participation. Uh, Kate Lally. Uh, yes, absolutely. Kate Lally, turn to you. Any kind of final ideas for, for this hour? You know, I think the things that we look for as we move forward are, are things that were brought up by our audience. So how do we define quality conversations? And I, I hope my colleagues in palliative care will be at the forefront, all of us, as we define that. And really how, I think we've talked a lot about team-based care, both Holly and I, and I think that is the way that we'll, um, you know, do this moving forward. So who can have those conversations? Can we re- be reimbursed as a team? And I know many, many people are talking about that. So I, I hope to see um, work done in those areas. Areas as we move forward. Thank you so much, Kate Lally uh, from Care New England. Really a pleasure to have you with the conversation today about conversations. And uh, with any luck and hope, more will be taking place in, in more locations and with the people uh, that need to be having these conversations. Um, Holly O, some uh, final thoughts uh, from you for the, today's show. Sure. Uh, I guess uh, just to echo Kate's comments, you know, I think the team-based um, possibilities here um, can't be highlighted enough. You know, as um, primary care continues to get busier and busier and busier, um, I think that the um, really one of the key ways that we can address the not enough time factor is um, to continue to look at our teams. Um, you know, community health centers have long been built on histories of sort of multidisciplinary work and team-based work. Um, and so I think as um, other primary care practices are moving more towards a medical home model, um, really the look at uh, team members and how our team members can really um, you know, help us leverage the, uh, 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 all of our roles and activities um, uh, can't be stressed enough. All right. Thank you so much, Holly, for taking part in the show today. And just because I see, before I uh, get uh, some final thoughts from Harriet, I do see a lot of people are wondering about the chat. A reminder, when you log off the program, you're prompted if you would like to uh, download the chat, so you'll have that opportunity. Uh, otherwise, Vicki cleans it up just a little bit, and uh, then it gets posted to our website. Uh, 
which will have um, by already all the elements, including the audio, ready by tomorrow morning at the very latest. So uh, look for that link uh, on IHI.org. But you do have this opportunity to download it uh, when you get off the show today. So you don't have to worry about copying and pasting it, uh, doing too many fancy things with Word documents right at this moment. Harriet, some final thoughts. Thanks, Madge. Uh, I'd just like to bring it down, back down to the personal since we're entering the holiday season. I invite all of you to download the starter kit, um, have the conversation first with your loved ones, and then after January 1st, make an appointment with your clinician and have a conversation. And remember that this is not just one conversation, but a conversation that goes over time. All right. Well, thank you so much. So my uh, big thanks to Harriet Warshaw, uh, Kate Lally, Hallio, and Jocelyn Moore. A real pleasure to bring you four together for uh, our discussion today and then combining it with all the fine participation of the WIH audience. So thank you all very, very much. Next up on WIHI on Tuesday, December 1st, we're going to be talking about diagnostic errors and delays. We have a great panel uh, um, assembled for that in the uh, aftermath of an interesting report that did come out uh, from the Institute of Medicine talking about this issue and what we can do about it to close these gaps. Uh, Again, a reminder, you can download the chat, any slides we had on today's program, but don't despair. Everything gets posted to a website uh, by tomorrow morning. Um, And also, if you have any questions whatsoever, if I've been talking too fast, you can email info at IHI.org. There are people who help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, Caroline Claxton, and Hallie Ladd. Uh, Kim Mitchells helps out with some tweeting. Uh, the Conversation Project has been very instrumental. Uh, also, Conversation Ready and Kelly McCutcheon-Adams, and I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. Oh, Zach here is to my left from the Conversation Project. He's been helpful, too, so thanks to all. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks everyone. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day.